Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. On Bloomberg Television and on radio, I'm pleased to say it's Larry Kudlow, National Economic Council Director. Larry, I appreciate your time this morning, sir, so thank you. Let's start with that stimulus conversation. The latest update, please, Larry. Where are we? Well, the ball's not moving much right now. I mean, the two sides are still talking, and the committee chairs in the Senate and House, the relevant committees, they're talking uh, on, on a lot of these issues, appropriations, small business, banking, and so forth and so on. So uh, there's that. That's a good thing. On the other hand, there's still policy issues that uh, divide the two, ta- uh, the two teams. Um, President mentioned some of them last night. Uh, he doesn't want to bail out poorly run states and local governments and their pension funds and so forth. So that's an issue. There are other policy issues that remain unresolved. So it's very difficult. The clock is ticking, as you know. Uh, be very difficult. Um, even if you had a deal in the next few days, you've got to go through the committee print, and then you've got to have votes in the House and the Senate. So it's not going to be easy. I don't want to predict anything. I'm just saying uh, there's more agreement than there was a while back. There are still policy disagreements, um, some numerical disagreements. So we'll see. It's still up for grabs. Well, let's start with numerical, then we'll get to substance. Larry, what numerical disagreement is there right now? Well, I think that in specific areas, I mean, I'm not going to get involved in negotiating, uh, Jonathan, this morning, but in specific areas, there are numerical issues. Now, President Trump, for example, has said for, let's say, the checks, the mailed out checks for economic assistance, uh, he's willing to bid higher on that. He has no problem. Uh, He's willing to go with PPP for the small businesses. Uh, No problem. Uh, He's willing to help the airlines. Uh, No problem uh, on that score. Uh, He's always been willing to do these things. He's willing to help the um, uh, schools as they, of course, transition and renovate uh, to make school openings uh, safe and, uh, you know, cover the health guidelines. He's willing to do that. He's not willing, though, to pour lots of money uh, into various health care schemes that um, might benefit folks who are not U.S. citizens. He has a big problem with that. I just mentioned some of the state and local issues uh, and the pension issues, and there are other issues at stake. Um, one thing that's interesting that's come up, um, in the, uh, in the uh, Mnuchin, Secretary Mnuchin proposal, I'll call it the Republican proposal, we are very much, uh, we're keen on onshoring Uh, for all kinds of supply chains, including pharmaceuticals uh, and related equipment. That's very darn important. And we would like to reward companies that either come to the U.S. for the first time or move back from China or wherever. So we propose investment tax credits. Apparently, the other side uh, doesn't like that. We've also proposed deductions uh, for restaurant meals uh, and other uh, forms of hospitality and entertainment. Apparently, the numbers there are sticking points. So I can't go through the entire list. I'm just going to say there are still issues. 
I think many people feel like we're just going around in circles at the moment, Larry, as we drift towards the election. One question that's been asked by, by many, in fact, is whether both sides are negotiating in good faith. Now, of course, you're not going to say that about yourself, but I do wonder, do you think the other side is negotiating in good faith? Do you think Spe Speaker Pelosi is negotiating in good faith, or is this just political posturing with 11 days to go? Well, look, I I'm not a political analyst. Uh, I, I don't do personal stuff. I can't get into everybody's head. I'm just going to assume that we've been at this since July or mid-July, that there is good faith. At this point, I'm not even sure what that means. Look, there's very hard-headed, experienced, professional people engaged in these yeah. discussions. There are veterans, all right? Speaker Pelosi is a veteran. Uh, Mr. Mnuchin is a terrific money man. He knows the budget story up and down, including taxes. Uh, uh, Senator McConnell is a very crafty, wily uh, veteran in these games. So they are engaged. They are talking, Jonathan. And I will ascribe, how about this? I will ascribe good faith to all sides. I'm not going to peck away on that. Let's just see, though. Well, the president's the done is, that for you. We, sure. Well, look, the, the president the of the United is, States said yesterday evening, Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to approve anything because she thinks it will help her politically not to. Well, I'll leave that to the president. If that's his view, that's his view. And uh, I don't have a I don't have I'm a policy guy, Jonathan. I don't have a view on that. Sort I appreciate of thing. that. All I all I want to say is this. We are in a very, very strong recovery. The V-shaped recovery is coming on very strong. We had phenomenal numbers yesterday on falling unemployment claims and rising uh, existing home sales. Um, but there are areas of this economy that could benefit from assistance. I acknowledge that. I don't think the recovery depends on assistance. But the PPP lending for small businesses would be very helpful. Uh, President Trump took the lead a while back on providing uh, federal uh, unemployment assistance by an executive order uh, with a plus up from the states. It would be very helpful if Congress appropriated that in some formal way. There's unspent funds all over the place from last spring's bill. Uh, why not repurpose that and legislate it, put it in, you know, codify it. It's not forever. It might be three months or six months. That could help Americans. We need the airlines. That could help the economy, put people back to work, get kids back to school. So I just, you know, sometimes think instead of these 2,000 page bills with gargantuan sure. numbers, why not just have, you know, separate votes on specific items? That's the way appropriations used to be many, Larry, many, many jump decades in. ago. I have, to, I have to say you sound a lot more like a Senate Republican than you do a member of this administration, because that sounds like the position of Leader McConnell. When you say the V-shaped economy is coming on very strong, if I'm a Senate Republican right now, I'm wondering, OK, if Larry's right, why do we need a $2 trillion package if the V-shaped recovery is coming along very strong? Why do we? Well, let me say, I have many, many friends among Senate Republicans, and I speak at their breakfasts and lunches all the time, uh, but I am... Uh, the NEC director for President Trump, who has given me a great opportunity, uh, and I'm doing my best to help him out on all these issues. So don't don't suggest that I'm on one side or another. By the way, well, Larry, you, you'll view, forgive me. It just looks view, like there's a bit of daylight between view, the president's position our, our view, and yours not, at the moment. There is no daylight between the president's position and mine. I support him entirely. I'm giving you his thoughts. 
on why these yeah. numbers don't add up and why these policies don't yet work. That's the best I can do. I'm not going to predict an outcome, Jonathan. Yes, maybe, no, maybe. I mean, I'm not here to do that. I just give you a lay of the land. And I appreciate you doing that. Did Leader McConnell tell the White House not to accept a deal? I am not aware of that. I am not aware of that. Because reportedly he told colleagues that he had told the White House exactly that, not to accept a deal. The president what seems I've to think, heard, according to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, that he can lean on Senate Republicans. And from where I'm sitting and where others are as well, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that, Larry. Why the confidence that you can lean on Senate Republicans to pass a bill that big? What I've heard from the president, we had a long meeting uh, Wednesday, what I've heard from Chief Meadows and what I've heard from Secretary Mnuchin is that Leader McConnell and the GOP conference in the Senate would be willing to support a bill as long as it is a genuinely bipartisan bill and that their asks are included. For example, we haven't talked about liability insurance. That is a controversial matter with the House team, but it's an important key ask for the Senate Republicans. If there's a genuinely bipartisan bill, uh, Leader McConnell has said, uh, and I've heard it from the President, Mark Meadows, Mnuchin, um, they go along with it. So I'll just leave it there. I can't speak for one side. I can't speak for Mr. McConnell, but I'm just saying that's what I've heard. On liability protection, have you made any progress whatsoever in the last month with House Democrats? Uh, Jonathan, I'm not going to get involved in that sort of thing. You know I can't do that. I'm not going to negotiate. Why not, Larry? I mean, you've, you've given me enough information so far on how the talks are going. I'm just trying to work out whether you've made any progress on that particular topic, and it seems to be a huge sticking point for negotiations. Because you're such a great journalist, Jonathan, I'd love to give you as much information as possible, but I cannot include you in the negotiations. Larry, what's the plan B? When do you walk away? You've seen this a million times. At some point you realize nothing gets done. Well, look, we have an election in, what, 11 days? Yeah. So the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. I mean, just mechanically, mechanically, it takes a while. You've got to vote in both houses. You might have to have a conference vote. Now, that could be done fast, but, you know, it would take a day or two. Just writing up the legislative print of a 2,000-plus page bill takes time. And then you have the issue of the operational executions. All right. Uh, I don't know that that could be done. Mailing checks, uh, re-engaging the uh, lending programs for small businesses. Um, we would do the best we can. Secretary Mnuchin did a heck of a job last spring, but I, I don't know between now and the election. So those are still dangling in the air. Well, Larry, if you can't get it done now, and this is my final question, you've given us so much time this morning, and I appreciate that. Thank you. It doesn't look like you've made a lot of progress on state aid. It doesn't look like you've made a lot of progress on liability protections. You can't confirm or deny that right now. If you can't get this done in the next 11 days, why would you be able to get this done before January? Well, we're going to take this a day at a time. Uh, the election results will undoubtedly bear heavily on this. And remember, of course, the Congress is still in session. There's a so-called lame duck session. 
That will come up. You've got a judicial vote coming, I believe, next week. Uh, with respect to Ms. Barrett, highly qualified, terrific candidate for the Supreme Court. So it's tricky business, and um, the clock is ticking, so we will see. I don't want to make any predictions. What I do know is this, Jonathan, the economy yep. is running faster and hotter than almost anybody thought possible. And as President Trump said last night, with great clarity, he is not going to allow tax hikes or regulatory hikes. He's for lowering taxes and regulation. He completely opposes a government takeover of health care. He completely opposes an end to oil and natural gas, which would be devastating for the economy. you got economists, distinguished economists at the Hoover Institute at Stanford who say those policies would lose 10 percent of GDP. Five million jobs. Middle class families would lose $6,500. Their whole increase under Trump, which was a record increase. That's what the president opposes. He doesn't see a dark winter. He sees an optimistic recovery and prosperity. Uh, the other team looks to me like very pessimism and a stagnation. Uh, decline scenario. Those came out in the debate last night, and I think uh, that's going to bear heavily on November's results. Larry, if I was Leader McConnell right now hearing you talk up a hot economy, I'd be asking why on earth do we need a $2 trillion package? Larry, it's great to catch up with you, as always, and I appreciate your time this morning, and hopefully we can catch up on payrolls Friday after the election, sir. Larry Cudlow, National Economic Council Director. A special thanks, of course, also to Bloomberg Radio listeners as well. If you have any interest in hydrocarbons, any interest in the future of this great debate, not out to November, not out to the inauguration, but how about 10 years? We have the correct guests for good conversation. We rip up the script with Afseni Beshlas, of course, Wall Street Week contributor and truly one of the world's experts on natural gas dynamics as well. Afsana, thank you so much for joining us. What is the political economics of the less oil these two candidates were talking about? What is your timeline? Tom, uh, what is really interesting is that the candidates are talking about it, but the markets are taking care of it themselves. You had uh, the BPCO on recently, and also um, the way the market is going right now and the way people are behaving, every utility company is increasing the share of its renewable energy within its own energy, um, uh, energy use in, in the US. If you go into Texas, the largest growth sector in energy in Texas is, in fact, renewable energy, solar energy. You go into the Middle East, the largest investments that are going on in the Middle East, in uh, Saudi, in UAE, in solar. So the point that is really interesting that uh, was missed last night was the fact that people are already investing in solar, already right. investing in wind. I was in the Washington News Bureau of Bloomberg with Spencer Abraham, long ago and far away, our Secretary of Energy for Bush the Younger, the day we discovered that America really doesn't have a national oil policy. Do yeah. we need one? You know, the, there was a time when we needed an oil policy and uh, energy policy when energy was such a huge part of the economy. Remember when we started, you know, uh, when we actually did have an energy policy at one point, 
or we, what we call energy policy, was when energy was more like 15% of the economy, maybe 10%. Today, the size of the energy sector, which is really the oil, mainly the oil and gas sector in the US is close to 3%. And so energy, while being very important, is not where it was compared to health sector, compared to technology, compared to the other sectors um, that have been growing. So it's not that we don't need energy to lubricate and to use our, our, in, our, in our cars and in our uh, manufacturing, but it is not exactly as important as it was at the period that you're talking about and when I started uh, working on energy in my career. Well, Afsana, let's talk about where you think we're going. Right now we're producing about 10 million barrels of oil a day in the United States. What do you think the trajectory is, of all of this actually is over the next five to 10 years? I think, as um, Vice President Biden said, it is going to be a transition. It has been a very slow transition. When I started again working on this transition, it was almost like 20 years ago, um, natural gas was taking um, a little bit more share from oil, but it was pretty slow. As we've seen in the last few years, natural gas has taken a bigger share from coal and oil, and solar and wind are taking a bigger share from everything else. So the transition could, could be a while, uh, as you, as we see, uh, the electric cars have been a little bit slower to come to market. Tesla obviously has been fabulous, and other cars are still having technical problems when they come in. But if you look um, at the economy moving forward, I would think that whether it is 10 years or 15 years or 25 years, there will be a transition, but uh, with faster and faster growth towards renewables as the technology that is helping with batteries help us um, move in that direction much faster. Asfana, has the pandemic accelerated that shift? You know, the pandemic hasn't slowed it down, Lisa. I think what is really interesting is that oil and gas got slowed down with the pandemic, right? And generally, the economy slowed down, which meant that you were using energy less. In fact, the president last night said that we have clean air. Yeah, the reason is because our economy is not at full capacity. Of course, uh, air gets to be cleaner if you're not driving as much and not using your factories. But, um, but renewable energy investments have been going pretty close to schedule, maybe delayed a little bit, but much faster than the oil and gas investments that were in the works um, before COVID. Absolutely. A lot of this begs the question, what do we need the government to do here? If, as you say, that private companies are heading in this direction anyway? You know, what the government could do is we... Um, had some, uh, we had a lot of support for the oil and gas industry uh, over the last 20, 30 years. And if some of that could also move more into the, um, into the renewable energy, I think it would be really, really helpful. Also, in terms of government having clear policies on, um, on uh, regulation and making it easier to invest in infrastructure and in um, energy uh, particularly renewable energy could make it easier. As you know, the regulation that has got, has been um, enveloped around solar energy has been very confusing. It has been on, off, on, off, on, off, and it has affected consumers. So having something that is clear and long-term would help the industry. Let's end on infrastructure more broadly. Four years ago after the election, the Trump trade, the so-called Trump trade, was all about infrastructure spending. It wasn't just about tax cuts. It was all about infrastructure spending. Then, Afsana, it just did not happen. Why does it not happen in America? Why can't we make it happen? 
You know, I think um, it's interesting because 2008, it did not happen either, right? There was a moment where we could have um, put some of the money that came into the economy um, into infrastructure. As you said, it didn't happen during the last four years. I'm actually more optimistic, Jonathan, about the next four years. I think this is a time where post-COVID, COVID has had a lot of um, physical and psychological impact on people, but this might be the time where in fact, you have industry, you have the financial sector, and you have the government coming together to build infrastructure. And I think that some of the delays we could blame on, um, on all kinds of things, but the biggest problems about uh, infrastructure in our country is the you know, sort of federal versus state issues and some of the regulation that has delayed infrastructure. And that could be something that the Democrats come together with the Republicans and help resolve so that our roads and bridges do catch up with the Chinese. I mean, it is really interesting how in the last, especially post-COVID, how the Chinese have continued with their infrastructure, but also continued investing in their new financial structure. We are still in a financial structure, which is the old mode, whereas they're bringing in digital currency, they're bringing in um, you know, clean energy, they're bringing in new infrastructure, they're bringing in new health policies. So I think it is yeah. time if we want to be number one to, to bring all of those things together and to the forefront. It's interesting to me how much the rest of the world is waiting for the U.S. to come out with some sort of fiscal support bill, how this affects Europe, it affects emerging markets. How much does the recovery in the developing world in particular hinge on the U.S. passing fiscal stimulus? Well, I mean, if we have a, something like a three a trillion uh, fiscal stimulus, it will be large. It will impact other countries. But also what has happened over the last week or two in Washington with the World Bank IMF meetings, as you could see, was relatively, I would say, hugely different than what um, Tom Keen and I have experienced before with the IMF. Uh, we also have, in addition to the US stimulus, the IMF head and the chief economist of the IMF saying that countries should start borrowing a lot more. That is the exact opposite of the austerity plans that you had for the last 20, 30 years by the IMF. So if you put that together with our stimulus, I think it could be a very interesting period of higher growth in the economies of mm. you know, across the globe. Plus interest rates may in fact not go into a negative zone and we might be uh, going faster into a period of inflation with the kind of debt that is getting accumulated and will continue to get accumulated. So we might have different problems on our hands very soon. I'm sorry, very quickly here, you are of Iran. Is President Biden's strategy with Iran the same as President Obama's? You know, I think that um, that countries are evolving. I'm not sure if his uh, policy is the same. I think his policy is to engage, just his, like, like he said last night, with, his, with the allies, so that the approach to Iran will be an approach that brings together all allies together. It's not just uh, one country versus another country. And if um, you do bring Iran back into society, into the normal society and the normal economy, I think that region could be in a much better place than it is today. Afsan Abeshlos, always fantastic to catch up with you. Thanks for your time of Rock Creek Group and Bloomberg Wall Street Week contributor.
Joining us now on this market, Lali Tokcholu, JOHCM Senior Fund Manager. Lali, fantastic to catch up with you, as always. This credit market spread to tight. Treasury yields are low. They've been higher this week. Fixed income. It's been a huge trade through 2020. Do you think it's going to break anytime soon? <laughs> Good morning, all. Uh, well, it's hard to tell whether it breaks or not, but you can't. I mean, this is a mistake I think many people do. They're very short-term oriented. And if you think of running portfolios, they're, they're like tankers. You can't just shift them overnight. So <clears throat> will the market break? You know, I think the market is getting expensive. And I do think if you <clears throat> dissect the, the credit markets, its fortunes are closely tied to whether economic growth happens and what kind of a stimulus mm-hmm. package passes. So I think that's a possibility, yes. Lolly, what's so important to me, and it's great to have you on with the Mathy conversation, is in Japan we are witnessing almost a lassitude where the dynamics have been sucked out of the fixed income market for various reasons. Is that going to be the surprise a year and two years forward that we migrate from bond and fixed income dynamics to a much more static market? It's possible, but look, there are differences between the Japanese markets and the U.S. markets. Um, the investor base is different. The, the indices are different. Um, so there are absolutely notable differences. The, the key point is they've been fighting with low rates for an extended period of time and very little to no inflation. Can that happen here? Sure. I mean, I think Kathy, hit, uh, Kathy Jones hit the right point, which is, you know, we're talking about rising 10-year rates and blah, blah, blah. Look, people were talking about a four-year, 10, 4% 10-year, not that long ago, right? Yeah. We're not thinking like maybe 1% max. Yeah. I think it is entirely possible it's lower for longer. It is entirely, entirely possible. And what's amazing, Lisa, is, is Kathy Jones' stretch and he flat there was extraordinary. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. <laughs> that definitely was extraordinary, which brings me to credit spreads. Lale, one reason why I always love having you on is because you're very realistic about the fundamental picture and struggle with pairing it uh, with the unlimited or seemingly liquidity from central banks. How do you retain that bearish view in light of the fact that the Fed is backstopping this market and don't fight the Fed is the predominant feeling across the street? So it's actually interesting. Um, I'll tell you how we're constructing and how we're thinking about it. But this don't fight the Fed. I think it's very interesting because I think one of the possible mistakes the market is making for the future is now I think everybody now bakes in that the corporate bond purchasing is now in the toolkit, as you know, as Jay Powell talks about. But there may be a nuance in this crisis versus the global financial crisis, which is this was a global pandemic and it hit everybody at the same time. It wasn't there was no bad actor. So I will warn the market that in the future, when we have another crisis, which we will, cycles still happen regardless of what other people say, it is entirely possible that corporate bonds may not be in the tools. I just want to make sure I plant that seed in people's mind. The second piece is how do we construct the portfolios? Look, I think investment grade has gone really expensive, long duration. Investment grade, I think what you need to do is pick the companies that are actually on a path to deleverage. There are not a whole lot of them. And take duration risk on those. It's about credit picking. High yield, we're still playing the liquidity, which is the refinancing theme. So buy the bonds that are callable in good quality companies. Rest of the high yield is challenging. And just because you guys talked about math and you knew I was going to talk about statistics. Let me walk you through one thing. High yield average index spread in the U.S. is 490 today. Okay. Let's just assume to beat that index, you have to bat for companies that are in the 500 to 800 basis points in spread range. 
That's only 20% of the U.S. high yield index. And out of that 20%, nearly half, half is energy, leisure, capital goods that are at the epicenter of coronavirus-related slowdown and stimulus payments. This is why you can't disentangle high-yield fundamentals from the economic recovery. So, Lala, let's start with investment grade and then we'll go to high yield because you said a couple of things there. The companies within investment grade on the path towards deleveraging, you said there weren't many. Where would you find them? <laughs> they're not that many, but there are a few companies that have basically learned their lesson and they're going to deleverage. I mean, they are basically selling assets and they're making sure they are working down their leverage. And these are the ones that were basically what people were talking about, that they were, you know, three, four, four and a half times levered pre-coronavirus crisis where the market was a little bit criticizing, okay, it's time to deleverage now because the good times may not last. I think those companies are really working towards working down that leverage. Now, there is a point that I think there are some, there is a narrative in the market, uh, which I don't agree with, which is this golden age of bond investor, because now that people have put on this debt, they're going to deleverage. Let me point this out. Large companies are not borrowing from banks. They're going to the bond market. The biggest difference between bank and the bond market is bank debt is payable at par with no penalty. You can't do that with the bond market. So whether you're IG or high yield, what the companies are banking on, future EBITDA growth or asset sales to deleverage. Again, that is highly, highly dependent on the economic growth. Lolly, are preferreds a legitimate yield equivalent or do they have too much of an equity component? I think preferreds, if you find, you know, there are some fixed for life preferreds that are very high coupon. And, you know, I think as the companies through the pandemic, none of these things are going to get cold. So at least until you get a better picture of the outlook, they are decent places to be. Yes. Lale, is there any trade to be had in the 11 days left before the U.S. election? No, I mean, it, it's, it, these things are very hard. But the market is similar to the equity market. There is a you know, general trade that's happening, which is stimulus-induced, right? Whichever party wins, it's likely we're going to have a stimulus. The question is how big it's going to be. And you can see it, the companies that may get the benefit from the stimulus, you can see the stocks and also on the bond market, a little bit of a movement. But nothing that Lally, we're specifically not- recommending. It's not the golden age of credit. Was, I've got to ask, was that a little bit of shade at P. Jim and Greg Peters in the last couple of that, weeks? Are you just trying to get her in trouble? I, hold, on, hold on a second. Hold on. No, I'm not actually calling anybody out. I have heard that <laughs> narrative. I'm not sure they're one of them, so I can't really open John. it. John. Okay. All right. John. I'm just wondering if I should tee them up for a conversation in the 9 o'clock in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> That's all. Lale, thank you. I, as always. Seriously. Trying to start some Lally, some Charlie there of JOHCM. What we've tried to do on, on a Friday, this is really, really important, is try to understand that, yes, we do economics, finance, investment. Yes, we do politics. And we do it with fancy ties and suits and dresses as we talk to the Bloomberg elite of the world. And we forget not that there's a whole bunch of other people out there helping us with that has been Patrick Foy. Pat Foy is with a small shop called the Metropolitan Metropolitan. 
Transit Authority, where he is chairman and CEO. And, Pat, I want to go right down to the basics. The last time you were on, we talked about a bus driver moving people around Northern Central Park. How about Radigan, Hendy, Hartley, Woods, and Augustine doing what you guys do every day, which is jumping on tracks of moving railroads? Yeah, those five, uh, Tom, those five Long Island Railroad employees on Wednesday at the Long Island Railroad East New York uh, station saved a man's life. Uh, MTA people do that uh, regularly. Uh, they were the right five men on the, on, the, on the spot. They called the train dispatchers, stopped the trains. Uh, they were flaggers, so they knew what, they knew what to do. Jumped down and uh, brought the man up to, uh, up to safety. It could have been a terrible situation had they not been there. Had they not been used their training and uh, their bravery and courage saved a man's life. Incredible public service. You are distracted by getting billions in aid from this natural disaster along with other cities nationwide. What is your message to the elites of Washington this morning on your need to get a check in the mail? Look, there are three reasons the MTA needs $12 billion. One is jobs, jobs, jobs. Uh, the second is social equity, and the third uh, is environment. Uh, I, I described last time I was on the drastic cuts we may be forced to make in service up to, up to 40% reduction on subways and buses, up to 50% on Long Island Railroad and, and Metro North, and laying off eight to 9,000 uh, colleagues. Our preliminary estimates, if, we were if our hand were forced and we had to do that, would be a reduction in economic activity in the New York region of about $100 billion dollars and a reduction of about 350,000 jobs, including 300,000 jobs uh, in New York. From a social equity point of view, right now we're carrying on subway and buses about 3 million customers a day. That's up substantially from the depths of the pandemic. But those are workers who can't work remotely, who can't telecommute, and they're essential workers. And just as MTA workers at subways, buses, Long Island Railroad and Metro North or heroes carrying heroes during the depths of the pandemic, they continue to do that. The people we're carrying don't have the option of a car. They don't have an option of, of working from home, and it's a matter of social equity. And, and lastly, there's a limit. Uh, we're now carrying about 90% of pre-pandemic uh, passenger car and truck volumes on our bridges and tunnels, uh, 90%. There's a limit to how many cars and, and trucks can come into the city of New York and come into Manhattan. We're near reaching that limit. So from the point of view of jobs, social equity, and the environment, we need this funding as a first-order priority. Okay, so what's your absolute deadline when it comes to making these cuts? Uh, what's your deadline for getting this funding? So, so, Lisa, like any organization, we're on a calendar year. We will present a, a plan and a budget to our board in November. The board will vote on it in December. It's got to be adopted uh, in, in December, and obviously – Bond investors and credit rating agencies and folks like yourselves are going to be looking at that process. So we really need funding and certainty about funding uh, early to mid-December at the, at the absolute latest. If a bill doesn't, we've been obviously watching the sausage making going on in Washington, and we really urge the Senate Republican leadership to support funding for mass transit, as well as the state of New York and the city of New York. If we don't get that, the MTA may be forced, our hand may be forced to, to make drastic draconian service cuts and to lay off thousands of people. The economic, social equity and environmental consequences of that will be dramatic. I have to say, Pat, as a lifelong New Yorker born and raised, yes, ridership has increased from the depths of the pandemic, but is far below anything it has been in recent memory. 
Given the fact that the MTA, the subway system, et cetera, is the lifeblood of New York City, is New York City dying? No, New York City's not, not dying. New York City is experiencing a tough time. New York was the epicenter of the pandemic, frankly, in the United States and the world. Thanks to Governor Cuomo's leadership that, uh, uh, you know, we've broken the curve. Uh, haven't, uh, uh, we've broken the curve, right? The curve's been uh, broken. Infection rates are, are, are low. Other parts of the country are experiencing spikes. New York City's going through a tough time. New York City's gone through tough times before the 1918-19 pandemic, 9-11, Superstorm Sandy. Uh, I, I've lived here all my life in New York. The city will survive. Other cities, New York, London, Milan, Bombay, Bombay ha have gone through pandemics uh, in the past. New York will get through this. But to get through it, the MTA has got to be funded. It is the circulatory system of the New York City regional economy. Pat Ford, thank you so much. With the Metropolitan Transit Authority, their chairman and their CEO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.